take your copy of God's Word and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Second Corinthians chapter 7, we will begin reading verse 10 and we will read down through the end of the chapter this morning. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true." And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. All right, so last week we really stopped in midstream, right in the middle of a thought. I don't generally like doing that. I like to cover an entire section, but there's just too much in this section to have done it any other way. Paul has here in chapter 7 returned back to a subject that he began talking about in chapter 2, this pointed letter of rebuke that he had sent to the church at Corinth, which was delivered by Titus to them. It's called a severe letter uh, most of the time. This communication, this letter that Titus delivered to them was written in between... First and Second Corinthians. We don't have a copy of this letter today. It was not what we would call canonical, but it was for their benefit. Paul penned that letter after a tumultuous visit to Corinth. I use the term tumultuous because Paul was apparently opposed by someone in the church. Some people think he was opposed by the adulterous man back in First Corinthians. Five, they, that may have been, we don't know, but it wasn't because of that. It was because he stood up to Paul publicly when Paul visited. It, it's really impossible to know exactly who it is. I talked about that in chapter 2 if you want to go back and listen to that sermon. Anyway, in the severe letter, Paul obviously rebuked the church for their mistreatment of him. And without a doubt, he told them they needed to formally discipline this man who was opposing one of Christ's apostles, whomever he was. He placed that letter in the hand of Titus, and he sent him to Corinth. And then Paul waited and waited and waited week after week, 
month after month, growing more concerned by the day as Titus delayed. This was not the day of texting. This was not the day of email. He couldn't pick up a phone and call. He just had to wait till he heard back. Paul went to Troas. Apparently they had agreed to meet there. Titus wasn't there. So he embarked to Macedonia. Maybe that was the second place they had agreed to meet. I don't know. When Paul got there initially, Titus was not there either. However, Titus finally did return. And he had good news. The church was repentant and they had acted in, in excluding Paul's opponent, this man that he had written to them about. Well, back in chapter 2, we know that the troublesome member, Paul's opponent, was excluded by the church because, because Paul tells them that he, he responded in repentance. Chapter 2, verse 6, Paul wrote, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Paul was glad they did the right thing, I'm sure. But, and I'm assuming this was relayed to Paul by Titus, Paul now knew they needed to reinstate this man. He needed to be a member again because Church discipline had done its proper work. This man had been brought to repentance and the church now did not need to remain angry with him. Well, the church's attitude in all of this letter that Paul wrote is what's talked about here. Specifically, their response to that letter. It exposed that they had genuine faith because... They expressed repentance in their actions towards the Apostle Paul. In the section we looked at last week, verses 8 and 9, Paul says, chapter 7, right here, verses 8 and 9, Paul said, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. So Titus reported the church's grief that resulted from this letter that Paul had written to them, this corrective letter. But it was a positive grief. It was a grief that led them to... Repent. We often think that grief is, is bad, and, and, it, and it oftentimes is, but not, not here. Their attitude towards Paul had changed, and they desired for their relationship with Paul to be mended, to be made right again. The title of the sermon this morning is Good Grief, taken right from one of Wendy's favorite things to say. Good Grief. In this text, we see repentance turn into action with a desire for more good deeds to follow. So Paul has said in verses 8 and 9 that his letter grieved them into repenting. They felt a godly grief so that they suffered no loss through Paul. Verse 10, for, you see that connecting word, for... Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, 
I mentioned this last week. Most of the times that repentance is mentioned in the Bible, it, it refers to a lost sinner's mind being changed about their sin and about Jesus. Usually it's related to what we call conversion. However, in this chapter, Paul is actually referring to a group of believers, corporately, a church here, repenting, changing their mind about Paul, and having a desire for their actions to be corrected. But that does not stop Paul from sharing a few general remarks about repentance. And so these things are greatly helpful to us. Uh, let me remind you one more time. Brian preached a marvelous sermon on repentance during our summer Bible conference. If you have not heard it, go listen to it. Or if you've forgotten it, go reacquaint yourself with it. It's very, very good. It's on our app. It's on Sermon Audio. Anyway, the word repentance, metanoia in Greek, it just refers to a change of mind. That's it. You change your mind. It does not refer to stopping doing evil things and starting doing godly things. That's not repentance. That's the result of repentance. But that's not what repentance actually is. Repentance is just the change of mind. I'm fearful many people think that repentance is when you quit doing something and you start doing something else. Listen, if that's the case, then this verse says, stopping doing evil things and starting doing godly things leads to salvation. And we're faced with a work salvation. And that's unbiblical. So we know that's not what repentance is. Biblically, repentance refers to what Paul calls godly grief over one's own sin. The things that you once reveled in, you now hate and you desire to be saved from. It refers to a change of mind about Jesus, whom you once saw as not very important, and now you see as your only hope for eternal life. See, there's this, there's this change. That's what repentance is. It's a change of mind. Colin Cruz defines biblical repentance as, quote, a change of mind and heart and a willingness to change behavior, end quote. It's not the change of behavior. But it's the willingness to do so. Now I know you're thinking, you're just being technical. Well, maybe I am being technical. But salvation is worth being technical about. It's important. So, if we're not cautious, we'll find ourselves promoting a salvation in which we work our way into heaven and we bypass the cross. That's not repentance. Repentance is a change of mind. Repentance then leads to salvation, it says here. It is not, in essence, what is salvation. But it leads to salvation in the sense that it results in saving faith. Repentance is a change of mind about self, about God, about Christ, about the gospel, and it results in saving faith. Faith. Now, Paul is just speaking in chronological language here. Repentance and faith occur simultaneously at the point of regeneration. When one is saved through the preaching of the gospel, they are drawn to Christ by the Holy Spirit. At that moment, they repent of their sins. They believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ. All that happens instantaneously. But Paul's speaking 
chronologically for us here. Actually, in our own Articles of Faith here at this church, it's, we, Article 14 says, quote, We believe regeneration and conversion occur instantaneously as a result of the Holy Spirit empowering the gospel of Jesus Christ, end quote. That includes, by the way, repentance in there. But look, until a person realizes they are a sinner before a thrice holy God, they will never see their need for a Savior. You must know you are on the wrong side of God. Now, in this verse, Paul contrasts biblical repentance with worldly grief which produces death. Many people, I I dare say every individual that's ever been born, if you didn't catch it, that includes you too. Every individual that's ever been born has regretted something. You've made errors. You've regretted them. A husband gets fired from his job. He regrets he got caught stealing. Now his family's out of food. He regrets it. He wishes it didn't happen, right? Wife cheats on her husband. Regrets that it's not secret anymore, right? Kid lies, cheats on a test. I don't know. Gets caught. Parents find out. Now you regret it. That list is endless. I I mean, we could go on and on. But that type of worldly grief is self-serving. It's not about God. It's not a regret for sinning against the holy God, creator of heaven and earth. There is no desire to be corrected. It's just selfish and self-centered. I wish I was still doing the sin and I had not been caught. that's, That's what worldly grief is. But biblical repentance is when one's view about God is changed. See, it's the opposite of self centeredness because it's God centered. It's God centered. We're sinners on the wrong side of a holy God. That's what Paul is saying. By the way, the results of biblical repentance and worldly grief are different as well. Godly grief results in self-denial because we default to the work of Jesus at Calvary. Right? Worldly grief usually results in self-pity. Man, I wish I had not been caught. Those aren't the same, and and so Paul contrasts them here. Moyer Hubbard writes this, quote, Worldly sorrow regrets more the discovery of the sin than the sin itself, and is closer to resentment than true repentance, end quote. Amen. That's exactly the point. So look, biblical repentance is a desire for sin to be corrected, realizing that this only comes through Jesus' work at Calvary. Worldly grief is the result of us not getting our way. Those are, those are not the same. Those are different. That's Paul's point here. Let's move on. So he goes back. He, he has that little general statement about biblical repentance in verse 10. Then he goes right back to what he's talking about specifically in verse 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Now again, 
The, the repentance that Paul is referencing here in this section, and this is, this is uncommon language in Scripture, but the repentance here is that of a group of saved people, a church, repenting of their previous actions and attitude towards the Apostle Paul. Paul had visited, someone had opposed Paul, they had not stood for him, in that they then mistreated Paul, they now regretted it, they desired to make it right. And Paul calls that here repentance. And then he offers seven things, seven traits, characteristics that were produced in this group as a result of their repentance. These are all very closely related and there's some overlap in these things. We'll just run through them really quickly. Paul says there was an earnestness, or, or we might say there was, a, there was a diligence or even zeal. What they were once lax about, now they were zealous to correct. Related to that, Paul says they now had an eagerness to clear themselves. Whatever wrong they had done, whatever might rightly be charged against them, they now wanted to make right with Paul. You see, they had an eagerness to clear themselves. Now, they had an indignation, only used here, by the way, in the New Testament, probably referring to their irritation against the man that had opposed Paul. They were irritated at that man. They didn't stand with Paul when he was standing up to him when Paul was there in person, but through Paul's letter, they became irritated with this man. Now they were angry at him, indignation. And then this godly grief which produced repentance caused them to fear, Paul says, with a, with a reverential, childlike fear. Remember what Paul wrote back in chapter 5, verse 10? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul immediately followed that up by saying, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Paul's fear of God, Paul's knowledge of future coming judgment caused him to go share the gospel, caused him to work for the cause of Christ. Well, that's the kind of fear these saints are said to have here, that reverential, childlike fear. What longing, Paul says, most likely referring, and again, Paul would have found this out from Titus, but most likely referring to their desire for Paul to return to them. Their, their promise to welcome him with open arms when he did return. By the way, there, there is still a divisive faction in the church at Corinth. We know that. This book would not have been written if not. He is going to address that later on in this book. But it does at least seem like the majority of the church regretted their actions when Paul was last there in person. What zeal they had, Paul says. Honestly, it's hard to know what they were zealous of. We aren't told. Paul just says, what zeal? Did they have a zeal for God? Well, yes, I'm sure. Is that what he's talking about? Maybe. Did they have a zeal now maybe for Paul and, and for him as their spiritual father and leader? I'm sure they did. That's the context here. 
This could be more of an excited redundance on the part of Paul and his pen. You know, he, maybe he's just restating earnestness and eagerness in another way here. He, he's, he's boiling over in happiness for these people. What punishment, or perhaps what the NIV renders here, what readiness to see justice done. I think that's probably what's being aimed at. They wanted wrongs made right. They had been wrong, but they had a desire now for those things to be made right. This offender of Paul would be judged and Paul would be declared blameless in the entire transaction. And then Paul says, at every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. Now they didn't do this when he was there. They were guilty when he was there. But here Paul is probably just expressing this earnest repentance that Titus had reported back to him, that this group of saints had truly made the turn. They had truly come around and now they were where they were actively working to mend the bridges that they had set on fire. So this severe letter that Paul wrote to this church between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, it was a reluctant letter. He hated he'd sent it, you know, there initially. It was a sharp letter, words that they needed to hear, but the letter had hit its target. It had hit the mark. It had done precisely what Paul hoped it would do. Guys, listen. We have no right to be a jerk to somebody else, fellow believer. But, this is hard, I get it, but sometimes we must have difficult conversations with people for their own spiritual good. That's what Paul did, and it worked. It's right here in this text. And so we need to follow Paul's example. Now, now look, I know Paul is an apostle, writing a letter to a church. That's not us. We don't have the right to do that. But there's still an example here of us having difficult, necessary conversations. You know, I know when we think of church discipline, we usually just think of that last formal vote of the church to exclude an erring, unrepentant member. But that should be the very final step of church discipline. More of this personal one-on-one discipleship needs to be going on that we see here and in Scripture. And if it does, formal discipline can oftentimes be avoided. So why don't we see one-on-one discipleship more? Or maybe I should say, why do we not do it more? You're not going to have to search long for that answer. Here's the reason. It's not easy. It's difficult. It's hard. <laughs> That's why we just want to avoid the hard and have, it, have the easy life, right? It takes our own time. And we're selfish with our own time. But we need to do it. I'll circle back to that later. Verse 12. Paul says, So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong... But in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God, therefore we are comforted. So God is seeing all of this. God sees Paul's motives. God sees Paul's words. He sees their heart. When they receive this letter, all this is done in the sight of God. And Paul says he did not write to them specifically to deal with the offender. That wasn't his primary goal. 
Now understand, likely Paul is the one who suffered wrong here. He says, although I wrote to you, it is not for the sake of one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong. Probably that is Paul. And he doesn't even make it personal. See, he's pulling the personality out of it. Paul's goal for this church, Paul's vision for this church was wider than that, bigger than that. He knew if this church did not handle this situation and the false teachers got charge of the teaching ministry there in Corinth, worse things were coming. Paul desired for their earnestness for him to be revealed to them in the sight of God. In other words, they needed to submit to Paul's authority because he is an ambassador for Christ. He is an apostle. He is actually receiving words to write down, the breathed out inspired word of God. They didn't need to recommit to Paul for Paul's sake. They needed to recommit to Paul because he's a messenger of Christ. Paul's not here then airing some petty grievance. That's not why he wrote this heavy letter to them. He wrote for the long-term spiritual health of the church. He goes on, Besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Paul is... Paul is actually sharing with them Titus's assessment of them when Titus got back to Paul. Like he's he's letting them in on Paul and Titus's private conversations here when when Titus returned. So look, it wasn't only Titus's report of the Corinthians' change of heart towards Paul that comforted Paul. No, Titus returned from Corinth refreshed himself encouraged at the way that the church took him in. Look, as I said last week, there had to be anxiety in Titus's heart when Paul wrote this severe letter, handed it to Titus and said, I'm going to let you deliver it. He had to be concerned. Everybody would be. They rejected Paul, the apostle. The one that had preached there for 18 months. What is the likelihood that they're going to reject Titus too? Pretty good. Except God's in this. That's the difference. So when Titus got there, not only did they not reject him, but they welcomed him with open arms. He was was received well. He, He found a very repentant People desirous to make things right. And their actions refreshed him with a refreshment that encouraged Paul when Titus returned from Corinth. That's pretty amazing. We can refresh other people by the way that we treat people in our midst. That's what happened here. Whatever boast I made to him about you, Paul says in verse 14... I was not put to shame. Just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. It seems that Paul shared an optimistic hope 
with Titus when he sent him off. Even boasting that he believed that the Corinthians would respond well to this letter. And we know from what Paul's already written, this was not without a measure of concern. A degree of doubt. He wasn't sure. To the point that he actually, for a moment, wished he had not written the letter and sent it. And yet he has this optimistic hope. He, he, he places the letter in Titus's hand. He says, Titus, this is going to work. Go. And Titus went. And in the end, Paul was right. It did, it did work. By the grace of God, it worked. He told them the truth. They'd responded in repentance, just like Paul told Titus that they would. Verse 15, he says, And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. That, by the way, this verse, verse 15 and 16, they actually begin to transition us into the next section, which begins with chapter 8. Apparently, we'll see this in, in chapters 8 and 9, the church had reneged on their commitment to the poor saints in Jerusalem, or at least they had been laxed in collecting money for the poor that they had promised there. In chapters 8 and 9, Paul's going to address that collection and Titus is going to be sent back to get the money. So you can see how these words then lead into that. Like, Titus speaks well of you. He remembers, he remembers how you received him. And Paul says that Titus grew in his love for these saints while he was with them. His affection for you is even greater, Paul says. Their obedience to the severe letter, their godly grief which produced repentance, the way they received Titus with fear and trembling, obviously acknowledging him as a preacher and an emissary of Paul, that caused Titus to love them all the more. And then Paul says, I rejoice. Not only did Titus rejoice, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. This is more lead-in to the next section. Paul, Paul did rejoice in their change of heart. This led him to have complete confidence that they would follow through with their commitment to the poor saints in Jerusalem despite their lagging preparation for the collection, as one commentator actually put it. All right, that's the text. Let's, let's sort of look at some applications then here. How can we apply this to our church, to our, our lives and those around us? A, a biblical change of mind. Good grief, as we talked about in the, in the title today. Remember, that's what repentance is. It views yourself differently. Seeing that you, individually... Not your neighborhood, not your husband or wife or kids. You individually are a rebel of the state. You are naturally an enemy against God. You have broken His righteous standard and there is no going back. You say, but, but I regret it. Tough. You've already broken it. And if you've broken one point in the law, you're guilty of all of it. You say, that's not fair. Well, God is not held to our standard of fair. He's just right. True biblical repentance then sees God's ways as holy. We declare He is right. 
while we understand as individuals that we have sought out our own ways, not His way. Biblical repentance views Jesus differently, realizing we have no, no, uh, no way to earn our own salvation, no way to make ourselves right with God. Salvation can only come through the finished work of Christ on the cross. So there is this desire then in repentance, biblical repentance, to be right with God. So, make sure you get this if you don't get anything else. Repentance is not a work. It's not stopping doing bad things and starting doing good things. That's the result of repentance, but that's not what repentance is. Repentance produces works, but it is not work. It's just a change of mind. So because you trust God, you want to serve Him. That's the result of repentance. And by the way, that begins... If you're a believer, that begins with stepping out in front of a church, telling the world that your allegiance is now to Jesus. You want to be baptized as a profession of faith to the world. That is not optional. You are committed to Him. If you believe here this morning, you've never done that, it's the right thing to do. It's not going to save you, but it's the right response. Oh, let me mention this. Even believers need to change their mind from time to time. We see that here in the text. These people changed their mind about the way they had treated Paul. This is not salvific repentance, though, as we often talk about. This was grief for past failure with a desire to make things right. Look, don't let your love for yourself stop you from admitting your wrong. I'm going to let you into something. You might not know this. I'm going to let you know. Before you leave here today, I want you to know you've done some things wrong. Just accept that now. And be willing to say you were wrong when you were wrong. It's amazing how quickly arguments can be settled when you just stop and say, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. We are all wrong sometimes. We just need to realize that and seek to make amends. So biblical repentance is clear in this section. Another thing we see here in this passage is how how a church can just slowly fade off into error. That's sort of what you're seeing here in the church at Corinth. They're, They're just fading off into error. Men do not get into pulpits, or today women too, do not get, unfortunately that's not biblical, but anyway. Men do not get into pulpits today and say, oh, Hello, my name is John Smith. I'm a false teacher. That's not going to happen. He may dress the part. He may have a Bible in his hand. He may do whatever. But if he's not preaching the meaning of the text, don't listen. Look, the text is right. If we don't get anything else right, the text is right. False teachers weasel their way in. They sneak in. They lull churches to sleep. Those churches begin to overlook little things, bigger things, and before you know it, they're apostate. If we are going to be a healthy church, we need to be astute, awake, sober-minded, listening, studying, paying attention. We cannot tolerate error because the moment that we tolerate error, we have taken the first step toward apostasy. Now, I'm not suggesting we have everything right. I'm sure we don't. That would be arrogant to suggest that. 
but this book is right. And so we just need to try and follow this book. There's no way our actions or our worship can be right when our theology is wrong. That's not possible. Another thing we see in this text, and I've already talked about it, I talked about it last week, I talked about it this week, is the need for church discipline. I know that's very rare in the world that we live in today, but it is in the Scripture. You see it in Paul's letter. You see it in the man whom the church here had excluded as a result of Paul's letter. Inaction is not an option when it comes to church discipline. Listen, we discipline our kids because we love them. If you don't, you're just setting them up for failure. And guys, we all need discipline. Everyone here needs discipline. But biblical discipline starts way before voting somebody out of the church. Way before. That's the final step. I've preached on church discipline before, and I've explained that church discipline falls under the umbrella of discipleship ministry within a church. One-on-one discipleship. Something that should be going on constantly in a healthy church. God uses the instrumentality of other people to grow us. That's the way that He has chosen to work. I said it last week, I'm going to say it again this week. We need more one-on-one discipleship going on every single day in this church. I have that, but I can't do it all. I talked to, talk to Brian, Jacob, several other people on, on a regular basis. They do it to me, I do it to them, that's constantly going on. But all of the discipleship doesn't start here. It has to start out there, between you folks. Which means you're going to have to purposely, intentionally take time to reach out and talk to each other. Otherwise, we'll never be healthy. And we're going to have to, unfortunately, deal with exclusion the wrong way at times. Let's not let it get to that. All that said, let me, let me close with this. We need Paul's heart. We need Paul's goal in this text. This severe letter that Paul wrote was not a personal vendetta. Yes, somebody wronged him. Yes, no doubt. But Paul is not writing out of revenge. He is writing for the good of the church. That was really his motive. Listen, it is easy to get angry. And it is easy to stay angry especially when you think someone has wronged you. I dare say it is natural to do so. But we're not called to do what's natural. We're called to do what's supernatural. God has given us His Holy Spirit, and His Holy Spirit enables us to forgive one another. Paul's primary concern here was the spiritual health of the church. And just like Psalm 50, Paul desired for this church in Corinth to follow God from the heart, not just in external ceremonialism. We need to follow the example of the Apostle Paul. We need Paul's heart. Stand with me if you will. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.